Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time, a truly great time, talking with Pamela O. Long about her recent book, Artisan Practitioners and the Rise of the New Sciences, 1400 to 1600, and that was published with the Oregon State University Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that is really a pleasure to read, and it's written in such a way that not only can specialists in the discipline of the history of science um, read it and get a lot out of it um, and really engage carefully with very sophisticated arguments, but it's also written um, in a way that is completely readable for the non-specialist, and that really is meant to appeal to, and I think successfully um, appeals to a very wide audience of readers from all kinds of different um, fields, walks of life, academics, non-academics, and so forth. It's a very assignable book. Um, So this is a book that I can imagine putting on my own syllabi for both graduate and undergraduate level courses for many years to come. And it's a book that's also very interesting in terms of the arguments that Long is making. So this book looks at the category of artisan practitioner and its relation to the new sciences in um, the early modern period, in sort of the early, early modern period. Now, the book also explores um, the importance of what Long refers to as trading zones, different sorts of trading zones, um, arsenals, mines, cities, even a tradition, a scholarly tradition as a trading zone, in mediating and creating a space for communication, productive interaction, and really um, self-transformation among categories of learned um, and skilled uh, thinkers and practitioners in the period 1400 to 1600. It's really, really interesting work. Um, it introduced me uh, to, who I, you know, I'm a professional historian of science, and it introduced me to historiography that I wasn't aware of. Um, and it's also just great fun, and it, it includes sketches and introductions to a number of really, really interesting characters and texts. So I very much enjoyed talking with Pam, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Pam. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Pamela O. Long about her recent book, Artisan Practitioners and the Rise of the New Sciences from 1400 to 1600. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Pam, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And listeners should know that we actually have the rare joy of actually physically being in the same place for this, since we're both at the National Humanities Center right now. So thank you, National Humanities Center, for the office in which we are talking today. (laughs) Pam, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What's your usual research focus, and how did you come to work on that topic? Well, that's an interesting and complicated question in a way. Um, I have long been interested in um, the writings of people who are craftspeople, artisans, uh, people like um, uh, woodworkers and people who worked as architects in the medieval and early modern period, painters, um, uh, navigators, um, um, 
And uh, my first book was uh, really called Openness, Secrecy, Authorship was based on, it was about openness, secrecy, and authorship, but it was based on writings by these kinds of people. Um, So, um, and that was a long time ago. And since then, I've I've, uh, been working on writings by artisans in different ways and thinking about um, the subject in different ways. So... Um, that's how I came to um, uh, write this book, which was a lecture series. And um, I wrote it out of, um, uh, uh, well, I gave the lecture series, but I also have like numerous notebooks filled with my transcriptions and translations from um, these writings uh, that I've been working on all these years. So, um, so it, it involved very um, extensive uh, origi- uh, primary research, what we call primary resource, uh, primary research. Um, but I wrote mostly by going to my shelf and fi- and having all these notebooks, uh, some of which I've used, but most many of which I haven't used. So. <laughs> So the book itself came out of your experience, as you say at the beginning of the book, as a Horning visiting scholar at Oregon State University in April of 2010. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? What did that involve, and what were you doing as a visiting scholar there? Well, that was really a wonderful um, experience. Um, Oregon State um, University has a history of science department, but or no, they have a history department within which they have a concentration in the history of science, but they had an alumnus who gave them um, much money to have a lecture series and to have visiting scholars. So I was there for a week, and uh, I talked to all kinds of people. It was just a most interesting week, and um, I gave three public lectures in that week. And they were public lectures, so they were for students and graduate students, but also members of the public. And uh, this book came out of those um, lectures, which which I did in May, and and the book was due in September, I think, which was a very close um, wow. deadline. <laughs> but of course, I had worked for months on the lectures uh, before then, and so the book is is the lectures, but then I added a chapter. Um, so, okay. so that's a tight tight deadline. Can you talk a little bit about that process? And one of the things um, that we often talk about for um, the new books network Mm -hmm. that I often talk about with people is the transition from one phase of a project to another. Mm -hmm. So dissertation to book Mm -hmm. or um, sort of idea to the actual structure of the final finished product. So what was that transition? And it sounds like a very speedy transition Mm -hmm. like for you. You mentioned in the book that you added an additional uh, chapter Mm -hmm. in addition to the three that were based on lectures, but what was that process of moving from the lectures to the book like for you? What did that involve? Well, actually, it was a a really nice process. I mean, at first, I did not know that I could really do this uh, because um, I was working on another book of a different subject, one I'm still working on now. So I wasn't actually... These lectures... um, were, uh, I mean, I agreed to do them, and then I thought, oh, dear, can I really do this? And and I found that I could do it, partly because I over-researched everything, so I had all these, uh, I, mean, I, lit- I mean, I do have hundreds of notebooks with all my um, notes in of treatises I've read by engineers and, and in the 16th century, 15th century. Um, but... Uh, 
getting ready for the talks was a matter, well, first uh, writing out all the lectures very carefully, but then um, thinking about the audience very much and, and going from talking to um, writing for a publication is it, I mean, they're two totally different things. So I didn't want the book to sound like a lecture series exactly. I wanted it to be, a, I wanted it to be very accessible, but I wanted it to be a real book. Um, and uh, with uh, footnotes and, and documentation and a bibliography and so forth, which Oregon State University Press was also wanting. So um, I got home after the lecture series, and I actually went on a short research trip to Rome. That's uh, <laughs> and then I came back, and I and I had um, basically three months to change these uh, talked talks into chapters and I just worked day I had fun I was I was at home I worked day and night um I I got it's like I can't sit at my desk all day without going out so I would go out to a coffee I live in Washington DC go out to a coffee shop and write there for three hours walk back that that was like a mile and a half each way to get exercise go to the Library of Congress work there go I was just working on it extremely intensely I wasn't interrupted by um, not even my husband very much um, and um, so I wasn't sure I could do it uh, when I started and gradually I it it, it was very um, it was a very uh, fun experience because gradually I saw oh this is working this chapter is working and then I decided to add another chapter and um, and that seemed to work too. So um, so that's you know that that was the process, and it was due on September fifteenth, and I got it in midnight September fifteenth. Oh my so. gosh, that already! <laughs> <laughs> I bow. Which they were all very shocked. Nobody had ever handed a book in uh, on time. I don't think anyone else in the history of books have ever handed in a book on time. So okay, so that's um, thank you for sharing that with us and that's um amazingly quick and um i will say also for listeners that it's a book that not only is really great for specialists and so as a historian of science i learned a lot and as a historian of science who specializes in the early modern period i learned a ton and a ton even about historiography that i didn't know existed so we'll talk about that but it's also written in such a way as to be very very readable and very accessible to a non-specialist and because of that i um i want to sort of highlight for listeners that this is a very assignable book. This is a book that I can imagine being on the syllabi of many, many undergraduate and graduate courses to come. And so that's a rare feat as well. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Very hard balance to strike. So let's get into the book itself. So as a whole, the book explores the ways that artisan practitioners, and there's a, a slash in between, and we'll talk about that category, influence the development of the new sciences in the history of science. So to get us started, there are two concepts in that sentence that listeners may or may not be familiar with and or that represent important historiographical positioning that you're taking with this issue. So let's look at those two um concepts just to kind of get us started and move us into the book, The New Sciences. Can you talk about that and why you chose to use that phrasing or that terminology rather than something like um, language of the scientific revolution? Mm. Well, um, you, uh, when, uh, uh, let me see, sorry, um, <laughs> uh, 
I chose the word, the uh, phrase new science because in Latin and in the vernacular languages, the people that lived in the 15th and 16th century and the 17th century did not use the phrase scientific revolution. That's a phrase that was developed uh, much later in the context of the development of the discipline of the history of science. And so I like to use what we call actors categories um, because I think that um, it reflects um, more, you get closer to what the people at that time that you're studying, what they, what they meant and what their point of view is. And I think that's one of the jobs of a historian is to understand what is going on in that time, not to impose our own cultural values, in a sense, on them. And, and so language is very important, and I try to use um, um, their own uh, words. And they used, they didn't uh, ever talk about the scientific revolution, but they did talk about the new sciences. And the new sciences in their various um, Nuova Scienza or different, their various vernacular languages and in Latin, Scientia. Um, and what, what they meant was that they were distinguishing um, what they were doing from the traditional um, scholastic natural philosophy, which was based on, um, very much based on logic and commentary of traditional texts such as Aristotle's and many others. And so when people like uh, Galileo, for example, um, and there were many others, um, uh, wrote books and articles and, and pam- or not articles, but books and pamphlets, uh, they talked about what they were doing as the new sciences, and what they meant is they were ha- they their what they were doing was investigating na- nature in a new way. They were applying uh, mathematics to their to their um, uh, experiment. They were doing experiments. They were measuring things. They were empirical. They were looking at individual instances rather than looking at causes or general laws. And so they called it the new sciences, many of them. Um, and so that's what I uh, chose to call it as well. And the one of the words you're using, they, actually becomes really critical here, right? Um, so what I want to ask you about is the other element of this, mm-hmm. um, of this larger argument that the book is making, and that's not just the new sciences, but, um, well, if that's part of the argument, but this idea of artists and practitioners. So with the caveat that I know by the end of the book, one of the wonderful things that this book does is argue for us to break down, you know, these sort of ideas that they were specific people and they were artists and practitioners and there were other people who were doing the thought work and really see these boundaries as fluid and see this as a practice. So given that, <laughs> who were artists and practitioners? Um, what kinds of things were they doing? Who are the kinds of people that we should think about? in this context when we try to think about artists and practitioners um, in the period 1400 to 1600? Well, um, that's a a very good question. And um, so I try to make a general category. Now, an artisan is somebody that you think that was, uh, one, trained in a a workshop. And so an artisan in 15th century Italy uh, could be... um, uh, it could be somebody like Leonardo da Vinci was trained as an artisan. He um, was trained in a painter's workshop, Ver- Andrea Verrocchio's workshop. Um, he had he was literate and he had um, he knew basic calculation probably. But then instead of going to university, 
um, he went to a painter's workshop and trained by uh, apprentice, uh, an apprenticeship to a master. And that's one characteristic of artisans in all kinds of different craft skills. And then I have practitioner in there because um, there are certain types of people like mariners. Um, one, of, one of the people I talk about is Michael of Rhodes, who was a rower, who began his life work as a rower on a Venetian galley and wrote a book. And um, he is not trained in a workshop, but he actually learned how to be a navigator by, um, uh, by rowing and then working his way up in the officer class. So, um, and people who, are, who farm, I would call practitioners as well. Um, and so I have this category as a kind of general um, category that looks back to um, an, a, a thesis that was developed by Edgar Zilsell in the 1920s when he talked about um, artisans. And he said he his thesis is called the Zilsell thesis after him. And um, he talked about the influence of artisans on the scientific revolution. He used the word scientific revolution. And he, so even though I, what, uh, the thesis I develop is, is quite different in many ways from Zilsell's thesis, um, I start the book by going back to his thesis because his thesis is, is kind of one of the original formulations of, of it in a different way than what I do. Great. Yeah. Um, and Zilsel, um, I'll mention, is one one example of historiographical moments that really surprised me in here because I had never read anything by Zilsel enough. I had never heard that name, um, which uh, I, I think is probably going to be um, not an unfamiliar experience for other readers of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the wonderful things about one of the early chapters is that you're introducing a historiography um, in here that some of us may... That some of our training may have left out. Mm. Um, and so we're, we'll talk about Zilsel. Mm. He's great here. So the book argues, ultimately, and we'll get to this by the end, um, that in the 200-year period between 1400 and 1600, as you put it, um, the empirical values that were intrinsic to artisanal work came to be embedded within a broader European culture. So the book, the chapters of the book go on to develop this, and we'll look at the ways um, that it's developed from here, um, from here on out. Okay, now chapter one is this wonderful historiographical chapter that I've mentioned, and this sets the historiographical stage for understanding the argument that gets developed in the ensuing chapters. It looks at the history of the idea of artisanal influence on the new sciences as that idea emerges, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s. Okay, so this is really um, a really interesting chapter. You argue that these notions developed, at least in part, in the context of Marxist notions about capitalist development. So can you start us off um, by talking a little bit about that? What was the role or the importance of Marxist notions of capitalist development here? And how um, how would that have anything to do with um, the, the history of early modern science? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a good and complicated question. <laughs> but um, <coughs> Mar- many of the... Um, early uh, proponents of um, what we call the Zilsel thesis, and there were others um, that argued in different ways that artisans influenced the scientific revolution, not just Edgar Zilsel, but many of them were Marxists. And so they had, um, they believed there was a kind of dialectic in history 
and that um, and, and there was a kind of dialectic, <clears throat> excuse me, imperial, um, imperial, um, a, dia- a dialectic imperialism, and that um, there would be a time when feudalism would change over to capitalism, and that the they had an idea of the artisan as working. Uh, it was a kind of romanticized idea of an artisan working in his own uh, workshop, making, uh, have, being highly skilled in making a product from beginning to end, and that that um, uh, that changing into a kind of factory-like system in which each person um, just did a fragment and lost the sort of personal um, interest as and and work as a person's output rather than just being a cog in a wheel. And that's part of the uh, Marxist idea. And um, uh, these Marxists in different ways um, believe that artisans, um, that artisans had values such as uh, empirical, uh, the validation of empirical work, uh, working with their hands, handwork, um, the idea of cooperation, that they, they were cooperative with one another and um, that uh, they, um, let me see, they were, um, uh, they had an idea of progress. Now, I don't think they had necessarily all these ideals, but the early Marxists believed, and they believed that uh, these kinds of people, artisans, influenced the development of a science um, that was empirical, that was mathematical, that depended on uh, instrumentation, and that depended on um, particular individual experiments as opposed to logical um, uh, writings and texts and commentaries. So that's kind of an exaggeration of the situation. Um, but it, it's what the early, anyway, it's what the early Marxists thought about the, uh, about the influence of artisans. Thank you. I think one of, I was just talking, um, at lunch actually with a, with another colleague and we were talking about the fact that, um, it seems in a lot of different fields as materiality emerges or reemerges mm-hmm. as a really important theme, embodiment and materiality in the work of a lot of people across, certainly across the humanities right now. It seems like there's really a reemergence of an interest in Marxist scholarship and sort of m- the place of thinking um, about the relationship mm-hmm. between Marxist ideas and um, humanistic scholarship in, in the past few years. So um, this is a, a, an interesting conversation that I think we could have um, that this part of the chapter actually potentially speaks more broadly to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. I meant d- a dialectical materialism. Sorry, not dialectical. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but speaking of materialism, that's right, because there was, um, uh, and I, I think going back to Marxism isn't, it's not a matter of taking up the um, original ideas in the form that they were uh, given at that time, because I think they're, um, that we're doing that very differently now. But uh, it, is, uh, it is interesting to go back and see what they did, because they were interested in material things, very much so. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the figures who um, emerges in this chapter as one of the star players is a figure mm-hmm. that you've already mentioned. This is Edgar Zilsell and his Zilsell thesis of artisanal influence. Um, on the scientific revolution. So can you introduce him? Uh, what context was he working in? Um, why um, why was his work so important for understanding what comes later? And maybe um, 
we've already talked a little bit about the ways in which his thesis influenced your own, but what did he work on? You mentioned that he worked on the concept of genius. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did he become so influential and, and why, if you would agree that we should all know about him and his work. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, Edgar Zilsel, uh was born in Vienna. He was Jewish, which is very important, I think, in, in 1920s Vienna. And he was um, on the fringes of the Vienna Circle, which is a circle of, um, of um, positivists who uh, develop uh, very important ideas that are important for the philosophy of science. Uh, today and he was a positivist, um, and he um, he first. It's interesting in the because he he was a very principled uh, man, and he wrote his um, dissertate what the German dissertation on um, on the idea of genius, and it was not accepted by the philosophy department at um, the University of Vienna. And so he never uh, got his um, degree, his habilitation, and he uh, therefore had to teach in high school. But he taught in workers' high schools, which uh, were these high schools of um, or schools for workers in Vienna uh, at that time. And Vienna was very much socialist Vienna in the 1920s until the fascists took over in the 1930s. And... So he wrote a book about the idea of, of genius, and um, he wrote uh, many other things about the history of physics. And he's there. There are now um, very good scholarly works on Zilsel. Um, uh, in the so in 1933, the fascists took over Vienna, and he was under increasing duress. And in 1938, um, when the Nazis came, and he and his family became refugees. And they um, went to, they had a sort of, um, um, they went to London and different places. They they ended up in New York City. And uh, it was him and his wife and his son, his teenage son or um, 16 or 17-year-old son. And in New York City, they were supported by other refugees from the Frankfurt School in Germany. And eventually he got a, um, uh, a, position at Mills College, a women's college in California. And so when he was in New York City, he started writing these very influential articles that were put into, um, that were published in journals like the American Journal of Sociology. And he published a whole series of these articles. He wrote them in English, unlike his previous work was written in German. And um, then he went to Mills College, and he was working on a book um, uh, that had to do with the influence of the artisan on the scientific revolution. And uh, very sadly, his life is very tragic. He committed suicide in 1944. So he never never finished that work. Um, But these articles... um, became very influential either positively among some people or negatively. And so they were argued vociferously against um, by uh, certain scholars, certain mostly Anglo-American scholars. Um, and uh, and they were kind of forgotten. But um, now, more recently, in the last 15 years, they've been looked at much more closely again and um, uh, sort of brought back to life, I would say. Great. 
You've mentioned um, the Frankfurt School, and uh, the, I'll just mention for listeners that the chapter takes us through a number of important moments in the development of these ideas. Um, one of the moments that you um, give us here is the Frankfurt School and the work of Grossman and Borkenau and the, um, the disagreements there. Um, you also talk about non-Marxist scholars, including American sociologist Robert Merton, mm -hmm. um, who STS scholars will hopefully yes. definitely know that name. Um, and then new approaches um, from the 1970s, including um, Kuhn's work and the ways that Kuhn's work mm -hmm. kind of changed the way um, we think about and talk about this. How does um, the reemergence of this issue, the issue of the importance of artisans and artisanal practice in the new sciences or in the scientific revolution, as it's emerged in recent decades, recent work, um, differ from, what are some of, here's a better way of putting that, this perhaps, what are some of the um, important features of recent work on these issues um, and the kind of issues that recent work brings out about these practices that perhaps differs from the kind of work that you survey in this chapter for most of the chapter? Mm. Um, that's a good question. Um, well, re because recent, recently meaning in the last 20 years or even sure. 30 years um, or so, uh, historians of science um, um, do still look at uh, major figures such as Galileo and Isaac Newton and Copernicus and, and, and thoroughly continue to thoroughly study um, their writings. But they ha also have very much thought of uh, the history of science as the history of, not, in a sense, uh, knowledge about the natural world. And so they've looked much more broadly, as a group, historians of science have looked much more broadly at at the culture um, around uh, these figures and uh, have looked at less uh, well-known figures um, and practices that everyday people do and everything um, in a particular culture that had to do with how um, knowledge about the world was, um, was thought about and what was thought about uh, the natural world. And so in this broadening out of the field, in a sense, in one, in one way it made it more like history in general. I mean, that's, so that's a, a problem for some historians of science. But in another way, it in, started including groups um, other than just great figures. And, um, and one of those important groups uh, are artisans. And so it, it, that that made people look back to the Zilsal thesis, I think, because there always, there had been this thesis um, um, proposed by Marx, mostly Marxists, um, and people like Robert Merton, who was not a Marxist, but um, and so it uh, it uh, made people look back. But also, um, I think um, I and these other and other people write history in a very different way than they did. Um, um, a history that tries to um, be broad in its focus on a, a culture, a wider culture, and how um, how individuals lived and worked and thought and meant in those culture, in that in their own culture, um, and how what import that had for knowledge about the natural world. Um, now, when we think about um and well, this is sort of a way of bringing us into the, the next chapters, right? When we think about 
um, the the real differences between the recent work on um, artisanal practice in the early modern world and in the history of the sciences as it has emerged in, in recent decades versus much earlier work, one of the um, things that has changed arguably, and certainly this is um, the case in looking at the way you're approaching this in this book, is the kind of source base that people mm. are working with and the kinds of materials mm. that scholars are finding useful in exploring the history of the new sciences or science and technology in the early modern world. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of as we move into the next chapters, these are chapters that are based in your own primary research into documents and into the materials of the period. So are there, um, we'll start off with uh, just a basic question. Are there kinds of sources and kinds of materials that you think are important to look at or that are acknowledged by people working on these issues now that are important to look at that are perhaps a new development, that are mm -hmm. not necessarily um, the kinds of sources that people earlier would have, would have mm -hmm. looked at for looking at these topics? <clears throat> well, I think um, that for one thing, there's a broad, I mean, for, in terms of what I look at, uh, there's a broad range of uh, writings by um, people like uh, Francesco de Giorgio, uh, an architect engineer, or, or uh, well, Leonardo da Vinci is an example, but uh, people like Ghiberti um, that have been studied by, say, art historians or architectural historians. Um, there are writings by painters. There's there's a whole slew of writing and writings by people who were trained in workshops, and so. Um, uh, the, to bring those writings into the history of science, I think, is an important move. And to, because it, previously they were studied by um, disciplines such as the history of art and architecture for, with very different purposes in mind, um, or by um, uh, historians of technology just looking into what techniques were discussed and what technologies, but they were very much part of a rich cultural history in the 15th and 16th century, and so, and they become part, an important part of the history of knowledge, um, in the sense that they were empirical, uh, they, they, um, they embody all the values that, uh, so historians talk about when they talk about the development of empirical sciences. And so I think um, that, so there's a huge broadening out of um, sources like that. Then there are also archival sources that, um, for example, one of my, um, when when we get to the topic of trading zones, which I, I mm -hmm. guess we will, uh, one of the uh, trading zones is the city of Rome. And I'm working now in the archives of Rome in, in, you know, I'm not looking for specific inventions or specific great people that, um, uh, that might, uh, have written a hidden treatise or something. I'm, I'm just reading documents because I'm writing a history of engineering and that's part of the cultural history of the time. And I'm arguing that, um, engineering and learned culture came close together at this time, and that so uh, those are the kinds of sources um, one needs to look at. Great. Now, as we move into these chapters, um, you're, su you're suggesting in these later chapters or arguing 
that there are certain dichotomies that have typically been used to understand early modern mm -hmm. science, an artisan scholar, art science, art nature, experimental mathematical, and that these dichotomies have actually distorted um, the issues rather than helped us really understand the issues. And so I'll just kind of put that out there as something that we'll kind of return to as okay. a theme, I think, in the, in the course of this. Chapter two looks at the concepts and certainly the changing concepts of art and nature. So perhaps one of these dichotomies that we can um, think with in order to help disaggregate mm. um, the dichotomy and explores a historical interaction between um, both of them. Now, one of the things that you talk about here um, is the, the role played by experience and experiment in medieval natural philosophy and alchemy. So in the work that actually precedes the kind of work that we're going to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about this a little bit just to kind of set us up? How did medieval people engage in observation and experiment as methods of investigating the natural world? And I'll, I'll say, I'll explain why I'm asking this. I'm asking this because one of the themes that runs throughout the book um, is this sort of intermeshing of practices that we might think of as artisanal or sort of workshop-based and modes of investigation of the natural world that actually you're showing have a much deeper history of relationships mm -hmm. um, than we might think. And if we sort of look to mm -hmm. look to find that, we'll, we'll actually find a lot more of that than we think. So how did um, observation and experiment as modes of investigating the natural world what did that look like in the medieval world, and so that we can understand how that changes? Uh, well, I mean, there, first, it's important not to exaggerate. Uh, there were um, some experimental uh, traditions in the, in the medieval period, and the mo I think one of the most important um, was alchemy, as, as Bill Newman has shown in his um, extensive work on medieval and early modern alchemy, and others as well. Um, <clears throat> And um, and it's not as if um, medieval people did not do any experiment. They did do some experiment. Um, however, if you think about um, uh, the the rise of the university in the 13th century, and uh, which which occurred in different cities, such as uh, Bologna or Padua or Paris, and other cities. Um, the uh, scholars in the university had to speak Latin and no read Latin. All instruction was done in Latin, um, and the um, people in workshops did not learn Latin. So they even spoke a different language. So there really was a separation between the kind of artisanal production, which became very important in the High Middle Ages, and um, learned culture. Um, and so it's not as if there wasn't any, uh, it's an exaggeration to say that there wasn't any uh, experimental or empirical traditions among um, physicians. There were some empirical traditions. Um, but uh, what I argue is, is really, um, an, it's an argument about degree. Um, I argue that it, with the development of humanism, and humanism is very important as a movement that developed from the 15th, the late 14th and the early 15th century, in which um, it was a movement um, in which valued rhetoric, meaning persuading people to do good. It, it um, valued history. Um, it uh, valued moral philosophy, that is how to live a good life in the city, especially, rather than, for example, dialectic, which is another word for logic. 
And so, um, as humanists, um, as the, as the, um, as humanism developed, and humanism was, they also valued Ciceronian Latin over what they considered barbaric medieval Latin. But as humanism developed, um, and it developed not in universities, but in the cities and, um, in, um, in the courts of Europe, um, that it, it, it became interested in, Classical texts, such as Vitruvius's on architecture, uh, in which uh, they wanted to go out and look at ancient ruins and even to measure them and to understand this ancient text and others uh, in with respect to what they were seeing on the ground. And people who were builders or stonecutters or um, work uh, skilled artisans could really help them uh, know what they were looking at. And so they're they're. Uh, came to be these alliances between artisan-trained people and university-educated people, not in the university. So, okay. so Vitruvius. Um, I've, let's get to Vitruvius. Okay. But before we, we get to Vitruvius, I'll mention for listeners, um, this chapter two also takes us through this transition that you um, just talked about really beautifully by um, introducing us to several figures who, um, if we take them as case studies, really illustrate um, this sort of in- intermeshing of these things that you're mm-hmm. talking about, including um, Francesco de Giorgio, including da Vinci, Serlio, and Vesalius. Um, and so I won't ask you to talk about those right now so that we can get to Vitruvius mm-hmm. um, and the trading zones, but I'll mention for listeners, there's really wonderful um, examples of their work and the ways that their work actually um, bear out this transition. By the late 15th century, as we come to the end of those case studies, um, you argue that there's a growing interchangeability of the two concepts that may have initially, at the sort of before this period, been held as distinct art and nature, and a tendency to use machines and instruments to investigate natural phenomena like power and motion. And this brings us to um, to uh, the really the star of the show in many ways, and this is um, Vitruvius in Chapter 3. Now, Chapter 3 looks at the Roman architect Vitruvius, and it does so to set up an argument about trading zones that you just mentioned. So um, one of the centerpieces of the arguments of the book is that the Vitruvian tradition, so we'll talk about what that is when we talk about who he is, but a, a tradition that comes out of the works of this figure Vitruvius becomes a trading zone that enables substantive communication between two groups, the practitioners and the learned, and that ultimately um, helps to break down these distinctions between them and perhaps as coherent groups. So to get to this argument about trading zones and the Vitruvianism, let's talk a little bit about Vitruvius. Um, Who was he and why was his work so important for you in looking at these phenomena? Well, Vitruvius was um, a military engineer for Julius Caesar, and uh, he was an architect who lived in the time of the Emperor Augustus. Um, and he wrote ten books in, De Architectura, um, Ten Books of Architecture, which is the only complete uh, treatise on architecture which is extant and was extant. And so the treatise was very important in the medieval um, period. There are about 75 copies of it or more, which tell you that it was important. But in the 15th and 16th century, you, st- you begin to get um, independent um, treatises 
on architecture, the most important of which was Leon Battista Alberti's De Re Edificatoria, written about 1450. But then you also begin to get a whole series of commentaries on Vitruvius. Um, now, it's important to um, understand that architecture was about building, designing buildings, but it was also about material construction. It was very much about machines, and it, was, it included every subject that we now put into the topic of engineering. So architecture and engineering were under the same rubric at this time. And um, as the humanists, the humanists were very interested in antiquities and the ancient ruins and other kinds of antiquities. And they had these ancient texts, such as Vitruvius is uh, one of the most important. Um, and they tried, they went out, and if they were in Rome, there were sort of ruins all around that were not clearly understood. And so there started to be um, many conversations between artisan trained people and um, and people who had had um, been educated in universities in a much different way. Um, and what by by substantive con- conversation, I mean it wasn't the, a patron giving orders to um, an artisan to make something. That's a conversation, but uh, the, um, the but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm saying that the learned person had something to give to the artisan, and the artisan had something to give to the learned person. And the, what the learned person had to give was an understanding of ancient texts that the artisan wanted. Uh, I mean, I'm not talking about all artisans in Europe. I'm talking about specific um, artisans uh, wanted to um, know about and to be helped to understand, and the artisan had knowledge of practice, of measurement, of skills, of knowing what you're looking at when you're looking at uh, some brickwork, for example, that the learned humanists wanted to know. So there were many instances, and especially as you get into the 16th century, of exchange and friendships between these two people from these two different backgrounds. And um, they became more and more undistinguishable in some way. There are people that we don't really know what their training was because they were equally learned and skilled, such as Fra Giocondo, uh, Giovanni Giocondo, and there are other um, examples. I mean, I think the most famous example is Leonardo da Vinci, who was trained as a painter, and yet he had many friends who were learned humanists and he wanted to know what was in these um, Latin books and he struggled to learn Latin as an adult but he was probably never fluent in Latin and he was helped by his his friends in the court who were learned humanists and they were real friendships I think they weren't just um, they they weren't um, relationship there was still a hierarchical society but there were numerous friendships in which uh, they were really kind of egalitarian friendships because each had something to give to the other. Friendship in the history of science. That's, if that's not already a book, that should that should be a book. Um, perhaps that's a, that'll be a future project. Um, okay, so this is, you're arguing here for the development of a Vitruvian tradition. Mm-hmm. And there are several figures um, who were introduced to in the course of um, exploring and defining and setting out what that tradition was and how it was developed. You've mentioned um, Alberti. Um, there's some other figures in here who are really interesting 
Fleming, who are responsible also for the different editions of Vitruvius that came out and that were produced. One of these figures, um, Cesare Cesariano, um, he was responsible for the first printed translation into Italian and commentary of um, this most famous work by Vitruvius. So can you talk a little bit about him? Sort of why um, why is his work important or what's, what's fascinating about him as a figure? Because I thought I completely um, already when I was reading this highlighted him as, oh, I've got to ask her about him. He's fantastic. <laughs> well, he, he's a very interesting character. He, he, um, he was actually trained as a painter. And uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting that um, uh, people and he, he want, a lot of work has been done on him recently. And he did have um, different jobs painting, but he, he worked on his Vitruvian commentary um, his whole life. And it's illustrated, and um, it, it's a big book, and the text of Vitruvius is in the middle, and the, his commentary is all around the text and sort of blocks um, around the text. And um, so, I mean, he's an example, and he, he had a, a, a difficult life. Uh, and in his Vitruvian commentary, he has a picture of um, the the unfortunate um and he he's the un, the the unfortunate uh learned impoverished who is being um harassed by his evil stepmother and so the wheel of fortune is up there in this amazing illustration um but he's not in it he's down uh and people with money bags on them are taking so i he he was um very put upon and um, and then it is known that actually um, he was married in Emilia Romagna, and he um, uh, was a ki- what murdered someone and had to be run out of town. And uh, he went and had uh, found different jobs, um, painting and doing various architectural projects and working on his uh, commentary. And finally, when he was just in the middle of book nine of his commentary, it was uh, taken away from him by the people who were sponsoring the publication. And so um, he had a lawsuit that went on for eight years, I think, which he finally won. And um, Vasari says he died a madman. But um, but actually, somewhat recently, his own. So he didn't do in the in the received commentary that we have. Uh, he didn't do the last um, chapter and a half. Uh, th- it was done by others. But recently, in Spain, was found his actual commentary on uh, that he did do that never got into the book. And so that's very interesting. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. <laughs> Now, this chapter, we were taken through um, this history and these figures to get to an argument that actually forms, that comes at the end of this chapter, but that also forms the bulk of the next chapter. And this is this argument about trading zones. So as I mentioned, um, the Vitruvian tradition becomes a kind of trading zone that enables communication between what we might think of as these two um, kinds of people that, that actually perhaps were not as distinct as we as distinct as separate kinds as we might think. So the final chapter, chapter four, or the the penultimate chapter before the conclusion, looks at the idea of trading zones and extends this idea of the trading zone from the Vitruvian tradition to other kinds of trading zones where learned and skilled practitioners exchange substantive knowledge. So the idea of the trading zone becomes really central for the work that you're doing. So what is the trading zone? Um, and can you can you talk a little bit about 
what a trading zone is for um, your purposes here and how perhaps your idea or the way you're using the concept um, might differ from the work, uh, the concept as developed by Peter Gallison, who sort of famously used this in a piece of his. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes. Well, the idea of trading zones came from anthropologists, first of all. And um, Peter Gallison, who's a historian of 20th century physics, um, took the idea to apply it to um, the development of 20th century physics and, and I think specifically quantum physics so that um, his idea is is that um, and I mean his idea is very different from mine in that he is dealing with a totally different situation obviously in the 20th century and he's dealing with different specializations such as engineers versus theoretical physicists and and how they can um, communicate with each other without ever changing their ideas one uh, with another. So they, and he shows how they communicate, um, but yet still have totally different ideas about what they're doing and what the conclusions are. And um, so I, I, and I, I am not an expert on 20th century physics, so I have no idea whether that works or not. And I think it's somewhat controversial, but I'm not sure. But anyway, to me, it was, it was a very interesting, uh, way, a con- concept to take to, and apply to my own, uh, early modern situation in, in a very different way. One way it's very different is that, Whereas he's dealing with the super specialization of modern times, I'm dealing with uh, a time which is pre-professional. And so it's really, I really make it a completely different um, uh, idea. And my idea is that in the 16th century, as it develops, there were increasing, an increasing number of uh, places, situations um, in which uh, learned people and skilled people, namely artists and trained people, communicated in substantive ways and, and really exchanged each other's values. So um, people trained in workshops write books. And you absolutely do not have to write a book in order to make a thing. Um, but they nevertheless started writing books, and they are interested often in participating in learned culture. So it, it, uh, way back when, it used to be thought that they, these books were how-to books for other practitioners. Not true. In most cases, it's absolutely not true. They are written for an audience um, mostly of non-practitioners. Um, and so um, skilled people become more learned. There are many cases of skilled people struggling to learn Latin since Latin is um, the, the language of learned culture at this time. And learned people uh, work at becoming skilled and um, or they exchange information with each other um, about their uh, particular realms. And um, there are uh, and, and I, I um, lay out a few um Situations like arsenal or places like arsenals, types of places such as arsenals or cities uh, in which trading zones become particularly important. Um, but um, in in general, I think that they become more and more important. And in this way, so the whole society becomes uh, a society which values mathematics and measurement and 
um, empiricism, that is, um, specific observations and the validity of specific observations and specific investigations into particulars, um, and that the, these values become sh- kind of shared values, um, and that then they're taken up by uh, people in the culture, such as Galileo, who, in other words, Galileo's work is brilliant and his own, but his values are very much like the values of the people around him. Mm-hmm. Um, Great. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're also highlighting for us right now the importance of values um, to mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. of science, which is not something that um, we necessarily, that immediately comes to mind when we think of the importance of the practice of science, right? Um, okay, so the chapter, um, the fi- chapter four focuses, as you mentioned, on a number of different trading zones, in particular arsenals, mines, and metal processing sites, and cities um, as trading zones. So what I want to sort of ask you to do, I would love to ask you to talk about all of these, but we, I don't want to take up, you know, an immense amount of your time. So I'll ask you um, just to talk a little bit about one that I know relates to the kind of work that you're doing now, and that's the city um, as a trading zone. And you introduce um, in this book Rome in particular um, as a, a city we can think of as a trading zone in this context. So can you talk a little bit about that? How was the city a trading zone, and perhaps um, Rome in particular? In what way was Rome a trading zone? Okay. Uh, I'd love to. I love talking about Rome. <laughs> um, so I don't think all cities are trading zones, and I don't think uh, I used the example of arsenals. I don't think all arsenals are trading zones. I don't think all mine and metallurgical operations are trading zones. It has so so you ha- to see whether there's a trading zone there, you have to look at it in particular. Um, but Rome, uh, uh, in the late 16th century, uh, Rome, wa- there were numerous building projects, engineering projects going on. Rome was being rebuilt um, in the image of the popes, but also num- there were numerous patrons who were carrying out innovative projects, uh, aqueducts were being reconstructed. There was all this conversation about how to prevent that Tiber River that flooded disastrously from time to time, how to prevent it from uh, flooding. And because there aren't uh, special uh, specializations, because profession, there is, this is before professional engineering. Um, there are people called architects. They're highly skilled, but they're not. This is before the licensing of architects, for example, and uh, all different kinds of people could become architects. And furthermore, when there was a problem or when there was a large project, there was a lot of conversation, uh, a lot of writing uh, of booklets, a lot of argument, different people joining in to give their opinion about how it should be done, and which was not. Um, uh, was not something that was a given how to do, how to raise an obelisk, how to um, prevent the flooding of the Tiber River, how to reconstruct an ancient aqueduct. These were all things that were being done, um, how to build certain kinds of huge buildings. Um, these were all things that were being done at a, at a very rapid and active um rate in Rome in the late 16th century, and all kinds of people um, put their two cents in, uh, and they did it all the time, and there were committees that met, and there were arguments that were had that we know about, and um, these were arguments and com- on the committees and in the arguments and in the many writings that were uh, made and in 
and I'm sure orally in conversation as well, uh, there participated both highly learned and highly, uh, and also highly elite people and uh, artisan-trained people. And um, so this was a kind of trading zone in a city that was basically being rebuilt. I mean, Rome was a construction site in the late 16th century. Um, so um, this is one example. Now, there might be other cities where that, it, that wasn't happening, and so that wouldn't be a trading zone. But I think you can show, I mean, I can show that, that there were all these different kinds of people and it was um, not only were uh, not only were learned people uh, talking to skilled people, but skilled people were writing um, treatises on, say, how to um, prevent the flooding of the Tiber River, in which they also talk about the nature of water and what Aristotle thought about it. So skilled people are um, writing in ways that w- and on topics that would be considered learned, and vice versa. So. Well, thank you so much, Pam. And I know we've we've taken up a lot of your time. And um, as we come to a close here, I'll just mention a couple of things before um, I, I ask you a couple of questions to close. Um, one of the really interesting things I'll just flag in this chapter on trading zones and different kinds of trading zones, um, you, you mentioned the importance that this is um, very specific, that these trading zones were also closely tied to powerful states, and that's important mm-hmm. to keep in mind. And there's also a wonderful discussion of the ways that language in these trading zones um, was mediated by print culture. And so for people who are interested in the history of print and language um, in their relation to this, there's a really wonderful discussion of that as well. Okay, so now that we are, there's also a wonderful conclusion, and I won't ask you to talk too much about that. Um, but as we come to the close to the close of this, this is an extraordinarily rich book, and of course, in an hour, we didn't nearly have enough time to talk about all of the issues and arguments and really wonderful character studies that you give us in here and works that you introduce us to. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that we may not have had a chance or time to talk about that you want to make sure to mention for listeners? Um, want to make sure that they know or something that you think is important um, that we didn't talk about, and especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I think we've talked about a lot. But um, but I think one thing I want to say is that, um, that um, things like what are called the scientific revolution are incredibly complicated movements that, in my view, um, are have uh, a two hundred year say backstory. In other words, I think um, I, I mean it used to be thought that the scientific revolution is based on, and I don't even usually call it the scientific revolution, but for the purposes of just like uh, um, whatever, I will. Um, I used to. Uh, I mean, so it used to be um, thought that it was a very time limited thing. Uh, happening in mostly in the 17th century and happening beginning in with Copernicus and Vesalius, um, the um, a writer on the famous treatise on anatomy, um, and that uh, you could just um, discuss it in terms of these people at this time. But I really think that something so profound as that, it's not really surprising that it's hist- the history of the values that... Um, Made the made the development of the new sciences happen 
that history begins um, much earlier, in the early 15th century at least. And I mean, I think that's one of my ideas, and that's why I start uh, the book in 1400, because... Um, because I don't, I, and you know, you might think, well, why didn't you start it in um, 1550 and go to, to 1800? Well, because I think I'm talking about something that's really important for the development of the new sciences that, that you can um, start talking about and, and should way back in 1400. So. <laughs> Thank you. And so now, Pam, now that this book is out and it's done, and congratulations, what's occupying you now? Can you talk a little bit about um, what project is inspiring you at the moment? Uh, well, I'm obsessed with writing a book of engineering in Rome in a 30-year period in, at uh, at the end of the 16th century. And, um, I mean, I'm interested in, in uh, many of the same issues, but... Um, really approaching it in a deeply archival way and uh, looking into engineering uh, projects as a process in which um, the culture of knowledge and the culture of practice uh, come together in very many specific ways. And I've been uh, actually working in the archives of Rome uh, off and on for 10 years, and now I'm here at the National Humanities Center, which is a wonderful place. Yes, um, thank you, National Humanities yes. Center. <laughs> um, uh, with my um, many file boxes in my office and am um, uh, beginning to write. So Great. that's what I'm doing now. Well, best of luck on this new project, and thank you so much for making the time um, to talk with me today about this book right here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. And thank you again, National Humanities Center, for hosting us today.